Welcome back to the Adventure Almanac podcast. Stories about adventure and what we learn along the way. Thanks again for listening and sharing. Have you subscribed to the podcast yet? Our next episode is out in a couple of weeks and you don't want to miss it. In the meantime, you can find us at adventurenerds.com. Come join the adventure. Today's episode is about climbing Mount Everest and what it means to be first. It's also about standing on the shoulders of giants, literally standing on the side of giant mountains, and also building on the knowledge and experiences of the people before us. When trying something new, we often fail. This is how most of us learn. When done correctly, failure can mean progress and steps towards success. Like climbing a mountain in a snowstorm, progress may feel small, but as long as we keep moving and learning from ourselves and others, we can succeed. As Mallory once said, it's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. Are you ready for an adventure? All right now, let's go. The wind howled around them at speeds over a hundred miles per hour. Norgay called it the deafening roar of a thousand tigers. What were they doing clinging to the side of the tallest mountain on earth? Feet of snow had piled up around them in just a few hours. It was beyond cold. They watched the thermometer equalize as it dropped below negative 40 degrees where Celsius and Fahrenheit scales converge. They were crawling on the ground above where birds fly. They were higher than most planes fly. They were nearly standing on the roof of the world, and they could hardly breathe. And they had to think to breathe. Every moment, every breath was intentional instead of automatic. There was simply less air up there. It was a race against time, the limits of technology, and the human spirit. Back in 1950, the Dalai Lama knew what was coming next. After World War II, everything was changing. Borders around the world were being redrawn. British India was divided into India and Pakistan. The Chinese Communist Revolution was spreading. It would only be a matter of time before Tibet would also be forced to change. It didn't matter that the Dalai Lama had closed borders and expelled all the foreigners. The Chinese Communist Party was coming for him and his homeland. It was only a matter of time. For 30 years, the British had convinced the Dalai Lama to allow the Brits exclusive access to explore Mount Everest from Tibet. When China took control, access to Mount Everest was closed indefinitely. But Mount Everest is a big mountain, and half of it was in Nepal. Westerners were slowly being allowed to enter Nepal, and it just so happened that it wasn't too hard to convince Tillman and his fellow hikers, who were on a trekking holiday, to go on a mission to the uncharted territory on the south side of Everest an area few outsiders had ever seen. It helped that Tillman had been on Everest expeditions in the 30s. After 40 days and 150 miles of exploring, they returned to Kathmandu with stories of friendly people, photos of beautiful valleys, imposing glaciers, and maybe, just maybe, a narrow and dangerous path to the summit of Mount Everest. The British team had high hopes, but they didn't have long to put everything together. They only had July to organize the expedition, or they wouldn't get another chance until after the Swiss team tried for the summit in 52. By the time they arrived in India, the team would only have a few weeks before winter, and the climbing was even more extreme. Shipton was older now, but he had spent over a decade exploring the Tibetan Himalayas. 
He was a mountaineering legend and was on all four of the British Everest expeditions in the 1930s. After he was kicked out of China by the communist government, he was looking forward to some quality time with his wife and kids, but he couldn't resist the call of the mountain. The Himalaya Committee made all the arrangements for financing the expedition and planning the supplies. It was a logistical nightmare. With only a few days until the departure date, the committee put out an emergency call to the Women's Voluntary Service and asked them for help packing all of the gear. The women volunteers saved the day. Within a few hours, they had organized the tents, sleeping bags, food, and climbing gear, and they had it ready to be loaded onto the boat to be shipped to India. Shipton and the team arrived in India in late August, at the end of the monsoon season. They looked at the muddy road from Kathmandu to the foothills of the Himalayas, and they knew they were in for an adventure. The trucks covered the first 30 miles in six hours, lightning fast compared to the rest of their journey. Ahead of them was a month-long trek in a monsoon. They followed roughly the same route as Tillman and the holiday trekkers had traveled the previous year. It was hot. The jungle paths were full of mosquitoes and leeches. Deadly murder hornets attacked the group and porters quit or refused to travel any further. Everyone told them people didn't travel during this time of year, but nothing about this crew was ordinary. Shipton hiked through the jungle wearing pajamas, carrying an umbrella, and snacking on a raw onion, while Bordian and the other men hiked shirtless and in shorts, looking more like a ragtag team heading to the beach than an elite team preparing to climb the tallest mountain in the world. It was slow going, but it was progress and the jungles of Nepal were still more accessible than Tibet. Shipton's expedition style was to eat local food and interact with the people of the villages. One member of the team said that if there was an unfriendly person in Nepal, they didn't meet them. They were welcomed with ceremonies and curiosities everywhere they went. The villagers sang and fireflies danced in the sky at night. It was Bordian's first introduction to mountaineering in the Himalayas, and he was spellbound. Hillary, a mountaineer and beekeeper from New Zealand, had been climbing in the mountains of India for the past three months and was nervous about meeting Shipton. Shipton was a legend. When Hillary caught up with Shipton's team halfway through the hike, Hillary had to laugh. The British were just as casual and unkempt as he was. It was clear that this was going to be Hillary's kind of adventure. It was late September, and the trip to base camp had taken twice as long as everyone had expected. However, as reported, Thangbo Monastery in Sulkumba was one of the most beautiful places on earth. The lush green meadows were surrounded by tall pines, and when the clouds cleared, they saw their first glimpse of the imposing southern face of Mount Everest. Shipton was greeted like a hero. Sulkumba was the home to many Sherpas that had worked with Shipton on past expeditions. It was a never-ending party with homemade booze. The British and New Zealand men danced awkwardly to unfamiliar tunes and stayed up late into the night. It was too much fun, but they were on a mission. Shipton, Bordian, Hillary, and the rest of the team established a base camp and began adjusting to altitude and exploring the lower icefall of the Kumba Glacier. Tumbling towers of ice and bottomless crevasses were just a few of the obstacles at 18,000 feet. It was a chaotic labyrinth of challenges, made more complicated by the constantly changing conditions. Huge avalanches roared down the giant peaks of Nupsi and Lutsi, sending massive blocks of ice crashing into the narrow valley below. They affectionately named the valley the Atom Bomb Area. 
They split into groups for reconnaissance. Shipton and Hillary climbed a nearby peak and saw that the Western Valley was indeed a viable route to the South Cole and maybe to the top of Everest. Bordian's team found a potential path through the icefall. When they reunited, they decided to try to make their way through hip-deep snow and the intimidating ice field for a closer look at the valley. With a crack and a boom, a giant block of ice fell from above, shaking the ground like an earthquake. They dropped to the ground in terror. Between the recent avalanche rescues and the changing conditions, it was all getting a little too risky. It was the end of October, and after all the work they had done to build a path through the ice field, there was still an impossible 100-foot crevasse spanning the entire valley. It was time to leave. On their way back to India, they split into groups to collect research. They climbed unnamed peaks, mapped uncharted regions, snuck into Tibet, and photographed possible Yeti tracks. Yeti tracks? Yeah, you heard me right. That's a story for another time. Lambert and Norgay huddled together, shivering in a tent at 27,500 feet on the South Coal. Their oxygen sets were barely working. They had no sleeping bags, no stove, and used a candle to melt snow and slowly thaw a block of frozen cheese. It was 1952, and this was Norgay's first time as a full expedition member on the Swiss expedition, an honor he didn't take lightly. He wondered what a Nepalese yak herder and a mountaineer from Switzerland, without any toes, were doing at the top of the world. With their oxygen barely functioning, they crawled out of their tent early in the morning and tried for the summit. Their brains screamed for oxygen and their muscles barely functioned under the weight of their gear, but they crawled their way to 28,200 feet. They broke the previous altitude record on Everest, but they were still more than 800 feet below the summit. A year went by and now Evans and Bordian's situation wasn't much better. They had learned a lot from the Swiss expedition, but it didn't make the task ahead any easier. For starters, the British team had learned to drink gallons of lemon sugar tea to prevent dehydration and consume enough calories to keep moving. They drank so much sugary tea that Norgay called it the Lemonade Expedition. This time, they were also better at predicting the weather, understood the importance of oxygen at altitude, had better protective clothing, and had crucial beta about the route to the south summit from the previous expeditions and photos from a record-breaking flight over the top of Everest, bankrolled by a former showgirl, turned suffragette, turned political activist, and philanthropist. Yep, there's another story there as well. Let's add it to the list. For the past 100 days, Bordian and Evans and 400 other men slowly climbed their way towards the snowy peak. It was a methodical and military process aided by six months of preparation and hundreds of people designing equipment, packing food, and organizing logistics. They moved from one camp to another, carrying gear, acclimatizing to the altitude, and trying to stay warm. For 10 days, the porters and Sherpas climbed back and forth between the high altitude camps above 25,000 feet, carrying 500 pounds of gear and food to make the summit attempts possible. Bordian and Evans were all set to be the first summit attempt. Bordian was a rocket scientist, and his past experience on Everest and training on Chuoyu had helped him to redesign a closed-circuit oxygen rebreather. Evans was 33 and a physician who had also been on the training mission. Both were strong and experienced climbers. If anyone could summit Mount Everest, it was them. 
Evans could barely breathe. Was he going to die? Had he pushed too hard? Bordian rushed over and with his bloody hands he fixed the damaged tap on the oxygen feed with an improvised pipe. Evans could breathe again. They shouldered their 50-pound load and passed what was left of Lambert's and Norgay's tent from the Swiss expedition of 52. At 28,000 feet, they changed their air filters and attached a new oxygen tank. Their packs were now 20 pounds lighter, and they, they were feeling lighter as well. Almost optimistic. They resumed their upward march. All of a sudden, Evans was having a hard time catching his breath. He could barely breathe. Bordian checked all of the oxygen equipment again, and it seemed to be working. Something must be wrong with the filter. Struggling to breathe, they decided to press on. Zigzagging their way up the ridge in the deep snow, moving slowly, they kicked a step in the snow, then stopped to breathe. They kicked another step in the snow, and again, stopped to breathe. They were running out of time and oxygen. Finally, they made it to the south summit, higher than anyone had ever climbed before. They could see the last stretch of rock and snow to the top of Everest. The ridge was steep, falling thousands of feet into gray nothingness on both sides. Ahead of them was a rock wall with a mass of snow hanging off to the east. They were only 300 feet below the summit, but they estimated it would take them another three hours to work their way to the top. They had enough oxygen for about two and a half hours. Could they make it? They were so close. They took photos, and after a few minutes, they turned around and headed down to camp. As they descended, they noticed that the snow was starting to fill their footsteps. Clouds moved in, and the ice was freezing to their goggles. They could only see a few yards ahead, and conditions were getting worse. With each breath, they weren't sure if they would have another. They were exhausted, moving slowly, and slipping and falling with each step. They had to be more careful. Before he realized what was happening, whoosh, Evan was on his back, sliding past Bordia. There was no pull on his waist, no break from the belay rope to slow him down. They both had fallen, and they sped uncontrollably down the mountain. They both came to a slow stop in the soft snow below the clouds. They could see Camp 8 on the South Coal. Their friends came up to help them down. Norgay wiped Evan's slimy face, and they shared congratulations for their achievement. Bordian and Evans had made it to the South Summit and set a new record. Most importantly, they had returned alive. Unfortunately, their report was that the final stretch was going to be a hard one. Now, it was Hillary and Norgay's turn. They climbed to Camp 9, a snowy, uneven ledge at 27,900 feet with barely enough room for the tent. Norgay hung off the ledge, and Hillary had to prop his feet on top of Norgay to fit inside. After four terrible hours, they woke up on deflated air mattresses for a 4.30 a.m. sunrise. They could see the monastery, 15,000 feet below. The weather was clear, and it was a perfect day for a summit attempt. Outside the tent, it was below zero degrees, and Hillary's boots were frozen solid. They spent two hours melting the boots over the stove, and then put on every piece of clothing they had. With snow up to their knees, they retraced Bordeon's and Evan's footsteps up the south summit. A thin, dangerous crust of ice had formed over the snow. Each step sent giant sheets of ice sliding off the mountain. With each step, they hoped they wouldn't go sliding over the edge with the next chunk of ice. Halfway up the south summit, Hillary and Norgay debated. Should they turn around? They decided to continue, and the conditions improved. 
they made it to the south summit and calculated they had about four and a half hours of air left. As reported, the ridge ahead looked difficult. They took it slow. Hillary cut steps in the ice and moved 40 feet ahead. Then Hillary stopped to belay Norgay to meet him. They continued their slow yo-yo for an hour until they reached the infamous rock in a hard place that Bordian and Evans had described. The ice left barely enough room for one person to squeeze through. Hillary wiggled between the rock and the ice. Using his cracked hands, he climbed the rock and stuck his crampons into the ice behind him. He inched forward, hoping that the ice wouldn't break free and send him falling. Hillary dragged himself upwards for 40 feet and then signaled Norgay to follow. When they reached the top of the step, they both collapsed in exhaustion. They had used up half their oxygen. Above them was a snow-capped ridge stretching endlessly into blue sky. How long could they go on? There was only one way to find out. They cut steps in the ice and climbed over a mound of packed snow. Each time they felt like the new mound of snow could be the summit, but the ridge just kept going. They had been moving for two hours and they weren't sure if they had enough energy to continue. They slowly made their way around another mass of snow and then the ridge disappeared. After a few cautious steps, they were standing on top of the world. They had reached the summit of Mount Everest and they hugged in celebration. Hillary and Norgay's achievement captured the attention of the world. They were instantly famous, but they were the first to say that plenty of people helped them get to the top. Hillary and Norgay were part of a team who built upon a long history of successive failures. It was an incredible milestone in human history, and they were proud of what they accomplished. But Hillary reflected that perhaps the more worthwhile achievement was how they used their fame to build clinics, schools, and training facilities to lift others up to the tops of mountains and beyond. In just a few years, the first human would travel into space and the world's attention would turn from the achievements of men on mountains to missions to put men on the moon. But in that moment, standing on the top of Everest, there is nothing between them and the stars. And we were all lifted a little higher. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this story. Music for today's episode was by Kai Engel. This podcast is produced by the team at Adventure Nerds. Look out for the next episode about the first black American to win a world championship, the legendary Marshall Taylor. Remember to subscribe. Give us five stars in your podcast app. If you have any questions or feedback, you can reach us at podcast at adventurenerds.com. Until next time, be curious and choose adventure.